You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. I guess 11th version of men's Bible study and um, kind of, I, I mention it every year, one of those lessons I learned because I just, I despise early mornings and uh, but I thought I'd gratify the desires of a few men 11 years ago and say, okay, I'll do a 6.30 Bible study and it'll go away. And now here we are. So it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's an honor uh, to see so many of you out there and to have an opportunity to dig into the word today. I'm, I'm gonna spend the next six weeks with you. Um, but, uh, and we're gonna study the book of Hebrews together. And we will not make it through the book of Hebrews in six weeks. The next time I'm back with you, I'm not sure of the schedule, I'll pick up in Hebrews where I left off. So uh, the next year will be a study in Hebrews. If we get out of chapter three, that'll be great in the next six weeks, but we'll see how, how, what kind of time we're able to make. Uh, in the spirit of just sort of where I left off last spring, just always trying to recommend to you books that you can read. I think I recommended this book last spring, but if I did not, It's a book called The Five Levels of Leadership by John Maxwell. Five Levels of Leadership by John Maxwell. Um, I would highly recommend it, no matter what your um, station at work. Remember, everybody's leading somebody. Even if you don't think you are, everybody is leading someone. We all start from the same position, but we may not make it to the next position. It is a fantastic book. I'm taking about nine uh, people through it in some individual Bible studies, or not Bible studies, but book studies. And it's just an eye opener, especially when you get through the first chapter and it asks you to hand out a survey to people who are direct reports to you or people who are closest to you. And you get to see their measurement of your leadership if you're kind of willing to let that happen in your life. Uh, another book is, um, I picked this up this summer and uh, read it sitting on a beach for a couple of days. It's called Strange Rebels. If you're a history person, you're going to love this. If you're not a history person, grow up and start liking history. You'll never understand where you live. So Strange Rebels, and let me keep reading it slowly. 1979 and the birth of the 21st century. Strange Rebels, 1979 and the birth of the 21st century. And it's basically uh, about the Ayatollah Khomeini, Margaret Thatcher, um, Pope John Paul II, you're going to find it fascinating. It is one of the most fascinating historic reads. Uh, by, the author's name is Christian Carroll, C-A-R-Y-L, C-A-R-Y-L. Um, if, let me give you a suggestion. If you're a digital reader, some people are really good at reading on their iPads or Nooks or whatever the thing is they're using. I can't read certain books digitally. I need to have pages other books I can, I can read that don't require much concentration, but if it requires concentration, I've got to have pages. So if you're one of those, I recommend uh, this book on pages because it's kind of, it's, it's not an easy read, but it's not a hard read. But then again, what I call an easy read might be for one of you a hard read. What I call a hard read, some of you will go, he's an idiot, that's an easy read. So whatever happens. Let's pray together. Those are my two books for... Uh, the week, I'll bring you a couple more uh, next. You should always have a series of books in your queue, so to speak, that you're reading. And that I'll leave it at this, and then we'll pray. If you're not a reader, become one. The only difference between someone who doesn't read and someone who is illiterate 
is nothing. So let's read, let's uh, pray. Father, thank you for this day. Didn't take long to look at a phone this morning or a calendar and remind us of exactly where we were about three hours from now, 11 years ago or 12 years ago. And in a day and age where leadership is missing in nearly every level of our lives, whether that's locally, the state, the nation, not to mention the world, we are reminded on a day like today that it is incumbent upon us as men who would consider ourselves irrelevant to the greater cause that it's the very men who would consider themselves irrelevant to the greater cause that end up being revolutionaries for a greater cause. So would you raise up in us what it means to be leaders, to treasure Jesus, which causes us to treasure the greater things and pursue the greater things, and never to sit back and assume the greater things. So in a day when our nation must face memories, and must face leadership. I thank you for allowing us to gather and first today to submit to the King of our leadership, the Lord Jesus, and then see where that leads us. So I ask you to open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, as Psalm 119.18 instructs. I thank you for this magnificent book that we will study. May my words be solely the words that you would approve of. And may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers when we leave here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews now. something that will be important for you to do in the next six weeks is to hopefully read through the book of Hebrews. Uh, It's 13 chapters. That doesn't mean it's very long. The chapters are not very long. If you're new to the scriptures, if you're new to your pursuit of the study of the word, I will tell you that Hebrews will be a bit confusing to you at first. Um, It's not, uh, to use the phrase I was using related to these books, It's not an easy read. Uh, You're going to read things that are going to remind you of the Old Testament. I've oftentimes referred to Hebrews as the most Old Testament book in the New Testament, but there's a reason that it is. There there will be many things that might seem odd to you. Uh, Chapter 6 will be quite challenging to you. Uh, We'll get to that in about six months, maybe. We'll just see how far it goes. Chapter 11 is probably the most referred to chapter in the book of Hebrews. It's oftentimes referred to as the... uh, the hallway or the hall of fame of faith, although it's always funny when we get to chapter 11, I'm always amused at how we read the first half of chapter 11 and about the guys and gals who had these great miracles happen in their lives, but we always leave off the second half of chapter 11 that talks about those who because of their faith were sawn into, fed to animals and destroyed. It's kind of a, it just isn't, doesn't make you feel that good when you get to that point. Chapter 12 is really where Uh, For the next two chapters, 12 and 13, the writer of Hebrews turns a corner 
and begins in light of everything that he's told us for the first 11 chapters, what we should do and the, the legacy and the heritage that is absolutely dependent upon the way you and I live. So it's just a, uh, it's going to be a fantastic book. I, I wrote out all the notes for you so that you could either turn the page over and make more notes on your own uh, rather than filling in blanks. I'm, I'm kind of tired of the filling in the blank thing. Um, I don't know why, it's just a personal thing. I would tell you, I think the theme of the book of Hebrews is the sufficiency of Jesus. I think it's the driving theme of the entire book, the sufficiency of Jesus. Every corner that you turn as you read through the book of Hebrews will show you how Jesus is sufficient, he was sufficient, remains sufficient, and he is sufficient for everything we need. And this will begin immediately in chapter one, and it'll even take us all the way through chapter 12 and all the way through chapter 13. Um, I will also tell you, in my opinion, it's in my notes in my Bible, uh, I wrote for my own personal study, Hebrews confronts my belief in religion and Christianity and reminds me to treasure Jesus more than religion and Christianity. Let me, let me say that in a different way. Hebrews drives you to the sufficiency of Jesus and challenges whether you trust religion or even a movement called Christianity. Now, I'm not telling you that I think Christianity is wrong. I'm telling you that Christianity, oftentimes referred to as Christianity, absent the sufficiency and superiority of Jesus is empty. And so Hebrews constantly pushes you back to Jesus. From chapter um, two, three, four, five, six, he will constantly be pushing into the, to the description of religion, but always pointing us back to the sufficiency of Jesus. Gentlemen, it is easy to be religious and it is easy to be, and I'll do it this way, the corny way, it is easy to be Christian. It is a whole nother matter to understand the sufficiency of Jesus and surrender to that sufficiency. Later on, we'll see the writer of Hebrews tells us that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And it begs the question, do we seek him or are we seeking something to make us feel better? And it will challenge the sufficiency of Jesus. We'll get to that a little bit more. Let me get to your notes and take you through some basics real quick. You'll just be able to read along with me on this. And I'm gonna try to figure out how to turn off this fan back here. Apparently, that's how you do that. All right, the basics. There is no certain way to know of the intended early audience. All such uh, proclaimed certainty is assumption at best. We really do not know uh, who the writer of Hebrews was writing to. Now you may say, well, he's writing to Hebrews. I mean, it says to the Hebrews or it says Hebrews. Well, don't be so quick about that because that does not uh, historically bear the weight of the evidence of history as far as the book is concerned. And actually, that doesn't tell us still where the audience was. It could have been people who were Hellenized Jews. It could have been Gentiles living under Jewish influence in what we would call a community called the Qumran community who are influenced by this. So it's just hard to tell. And, and um, I, I just tell you that information because sometimes if you read the book of Ephesians, it says to the church at Ephesus. We really do not know exactly who this book was to. 
The second thing is this, there is no certain way to know the meaning of the title or um, the, the meaning of the title nor the audience the title might point towards. So I'm just kind of repeating myself in numbers one and two, but there are a lot of people who oftentimes will claim things, and we'll talk about authorship in, number, in letter C, but they'll claim to be able to tell you exactly who Hebrews is to and where the people were located. They are, they are piecing things together of history that are just conjecture at best. And it's really kind of irrelevant whether you know it or not. You don't have to know who the audience was or where they were located. Let me go to letter C. There's no certain way to know the identity of the human author. Uh, the, obviously, the author is God Almighty through the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit. But there is no way to know who the author is. Now, let me invite you to turn to chapter 13. And there are many scholars who, many say it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons you would not conclude it was the Apostle Paul is because the Apostle Paul, in all of his letters, tells us it's him. And he greets a certain way. In all of his letters, he greets a certain way and he, he has a benediction that's the same way. That does not happen in Hebrews. Some people say it's Apollos. Again, all you can do is pick up clues and you can make your conclusion, you can make your assumption, but you're not gonna be able to be certain about it. You can be certain in your own mind, but that's not a very safe place to be sometimes. Uh, let me show you what I mean in verse 22. So you're in chapter 13, verse 22. Many people will use this reference uh, to say that it points towards the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my words of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. They'll use that as a clue. He, he refers to him as Timothy, although Paul would more than likely refer to Timothy as his son in the faith more than he would refer to him as a brother, unless we're way on down in history now. But anyways, apparently Timothy had been in prison and he says, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet uh, all your leaders and all the saints and those who come from Italy send you greetings as well. So people will talk about Paul's imprisonment in Rome and will say that uh, this is a certain reference that this comes from the hand of Paul. And then the only slight tip of the hat towards a traditional Paul kind of conclusion is grace be with all of you. But the bottom line is the author is never stated. And if anybody ever asserts to you that they know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews, they are deceived at best, a liar at worst. Okay, so nobody knows. It's a great debate, but it's not gonna get us anywhere. Um, as early, uh, the earliest reference we have to the book of Hebrews is in AD 96. I think that's on your notes as well. So uh, that's the earliest reference we have of an author referencing this book to the Hebrews, so to speak. And so we know it's a very old book and probably written, probably, well, I'm not going to tell you that. So let's go to number two, because this is where we're going to spend most of our time. The superiority of Jesus and a promised rest. But today we're gonna to spend most of our time on the superiority of Jesus. Let's begin in chapter one, and this morning we will make our way through three verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, important phrase, in these last days, I've said this before, let me repeat this. Every generation believes they're in the last days. This is, this is prior to 
A.D., probably 80, at least A.D. 96. And the author is already saying, in these last days. Now, just tuck that away because when you remember that every generation believes they're in the last days, oftentimes you can get caught up in last days issues and miss the Jesus who runs all the days. You can go frantic about trying to figure out what's going to happen or what Syria has to do with the last days or what's going on around the world and you can completely miss what is supposed to be your focus, which is Jesus. The first generation of believers after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension all believed they were living in the last days. So the simplicity of it is this. If someone asks you, are we living in the last days? Your answer is very simply what? Yes, and we have been for a long time. How do you know we're living in the last days? Because the book of Hebrews tells me we're living in the last days. Can you point to anything today that helps you know we're living in the last days? Doesn't matter. I am told to be alert. And if you become more worried and more frantic and more concerned because of what's happening today than you were yesterday, then I submit to you, your focus is on issues and not on Jesus. And our focus must be on Jesus, the superiority of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. Because for a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you have a hundred days left or this is your last day. Because what you treasure as sufficient does not change regardless of the atmosphere. So be careful with this hysteria that oftentimes accompanies world events. Because it should not change what we do or what we pursue. And if the hysteria of culture changes what you do or what you're pursuing, you might need to back up and ask why you were pursuing what you were pursuing in the first place. Because my pursuits should actually be only driven by the treasuring of Jesus. And that dictates what I do and what I'm after. Which would beg the question, why are you doing what you do and what are you after that you're after? What's your goal? What's your ambition? What's your drive? And it it begs a prayerful response where you sit with the Lord and you say, dear Jesus, what is driving me? What is, what is driving my ambition? What is driving my passion? And submit that to the Lord and submit your anxiety to the Lord and let him nurture you in these last days. But in these last days, verse two, he has spoken to us by his son. And now in one and a half verses, which is a very interesting thing that he's about to do, he's gonna give us a sevenfold description of the superiority of Jesus. And I have them in your notes. So let's just go through them one by one. The first thing, and you can see kind of letter A there, I I encapsulated this whole thing, that Jesus is superior in his revelation. He's the perfect and final revelation of God himself, his work of salvation, and gracious reconciliation. So the first letter there, Jesus is the final owner of all things seen and unseen. Let's read verse two. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the one to whom everything is driving towards. He is the one that everything is for. In fact, look at chapter two, just right next door to chapter one. Look at chapter two, verse eight. There's gonna be a lot of 
referencing the Psalms, occasionally references to the book of Isaiah as we go through this book. We'll see that as we travel through the chapters. So I'm picking up in the middle of a quotation in verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet is the end of a quote, but now listen to what the author says. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. Gentlemen, please let that marinate over your heart and soul, that he left nothing outside of the control of Jesus. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, that is Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now let me take you to uh, chapter 10. Move over to chapter 10 under this heading of Jesus being the final owner of all things seen and unseen. Chapter 10 I'll begin reading in verse 12 as the beginning of a sentence. Actually, let's read verse 11 so that I don't have to have you turn back to it a little bit later. You've already heard it. Verse 11. Remember, I'll tell you a word to remember here. And every priest stands, remember that word, remember where you heard it, okay? Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, here's the verse we were headed towards, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Let me finish the paragraph. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And now keep turning to the right. I'll show you one more passage in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. God the Father has set Jesus as the one to whom everything is driving towards. He is the inheritor of it all. He is the heir of it all. He is the supreme owner of it all. Revelation chapter one, verse eight. You've heard this, but again, it shows you the completion in Jesus. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and with who is to come, the almighty. Now go to the last chapter of Revelation, which is chapter 22. Chapter 22 If, you'll, if you're paying attention, uh, you're going to catch a few things here. Because in chapter 1, verse 8 that you just read, it said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. But now watch what happens in chapter 22, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. Here you see the equality of God the Father and God the Son, if you're paying attention to this. I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Just showing you a few other references that everything is driving towards Jesus. He is the center of the work of God the Father. Everything is centered 
I'll use a Francis Schaeffer term. Everything is centered around the finished, sufficient work of Jesus. There is nothing left to be done for you that has not been completed in Jesus, but what is ultimately to be done with us has not come yet. Let's go to the second thing because we're gonna um, need the time. Verse two, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom, this is number one, he appointed the heir of all things. And the next thing, through whom also he created the world. Again, we're back in Hebrews, verse chapter one, verse two. Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Jesus is the ultimate agent of creation. Now watch this, because anytime you run into someone that wants to talk about when Jesus began, he always was as God the Son. And he was present at creation, in creation, and the scriptures tell us he is the agent of creation. Let me show you some other places, okay? Go back, to, keep a, now you know, keep a marker at Hebrews. Go to the book of John, okay? The book of John, which just go to the left. If you're not real familiar with your Bible, grab a chunk of change and go to John chapter one. John chapter one. John one. We may not get out of verse two today. This is great. John one. Some of you have this, this passage memorized in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse three. This is a reference to Jesus. So just to help you know what that's talking about. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now let's read it again so you see the picture. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to give you a tough passage to find because it's a little book. You're in John, you're going to head back toward Hebrews, but you're going to stop when you get to the book of Colossians, okay? So you're going to go uh, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This gives, as you're looking up Colossians 1 and looking with your eyes, listen with your ears as I remind you that the importance of Jesus being the agent of creation is to help you understand that he came to redeem his own creation. He, he did not come to save God's creation. He came to save his creation, which you say, well, you're saying the same thing, but I'm helping you understand Jesus came to save his own creation. He is the agent of creation. And he is the one who is the sufficient sacrifice for his creation. Colossians chapter one, let me have you turn to, uh, let me see where I want to pick up. How about verse 15? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Interesting word there. It's where we get our word prototype. Okay, it's prototakos. Well, depending on how you're going to pronounce your omicrons. Verse 16. For by him, 
all things were created. Now watch this. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it's a throne or a dominion or a ruler or an authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before everything and in him all things hold together. Now, gentlemen, I don't mean to keep harping on this point, but if you find yourself fretting over issues of the day and it causes you to fret outside of the control of the Lord Jesus rather than to say, thank you, Jesus, that it is all held together by you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't like it. And there are things I want to see change. But I thank you that you are supreme and you are sufficient. Now that is not a naive prayer because it's not a naive naive prayer when I was three miles or seven miles away from the Murrah Federal Building when it blew up. And I was in it two days before at 9 a.m. It is not a naive prayer when 12 years ago you watched planes bring down landmarks in our nation. But gentlemen, we are not allowed to fret outside the supremacy of Jesus. We are not allowed to spin around wildly like the rest of culture and say, oh my God, what are you doing? But we are only allowed to bow to our knees and to lift our eyes to heaven and to say, thank you that you are supreme and you are sufficient and this life is not worth it and I claim your sufficiency. You are not allowed to be one who frets Because if you are a Christian, if you are a lover of Jesus, you sit under the supremacy of one who has created all things and according to the testimony of scripture, he is holding it all together by the power of his word and he is leading it to a destination known, not unknown. And he is not a king of kings beholding what's happening on the earth going, oh my self, he is not doing that. He is a God who has, through the sufficiency of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, has displayed to us there is only one thing sufficient of your concern, and that is the treasuring of Jesus, because the treasuring of Jesus dictates everything you do. I hope you write that down, because it even dictates how you struggle with sin. The treasuring of Jesus dictates the way you love your wife. The treasuring of Jesus dictates the way you work today. The treasuring of Jesus dictates how you take care of your body. The treasuring of Jesus dictates what comes out of your mouth and how quickly you repent for what came out of it. The treasuring of Jesus dictates how you even see your identity. The treasuring of Jesus dictates everything. Because you always respond to that which you treasure the most. And what you treasure the most always dictates how you live. And Jesus is the only one as the ultimate agent of creation and the final owner of all things who deserves our treasuring. Let's go to the uh, third thing. Let's keep moving. Hebrews chapter one. Let's go back there. I think that's where we are. You should be there in the scriptures. 
He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. So this third thing is, he is the radiant expression of the glory of God. I think in your notes it says this, said another way, as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. That was by an author named Bruce in his epistle to the Hebrews. The glory of God is the perfection of the attributes of God on display. The glory of God is the, the, the perfection of his attributes on display. Let me, let me give you another twist on that. When you are told and I am told to work for the glory of the Lord, it is simply a way of saying that my work puts on display the attributes of God which begs the next question you know is coming. Does your work and the way you work put on display the beauty of God? Does the way you work with your hands and the way that you, and what you think is an unseen world of your oil field work that nobody sees because it's in the dead of dark or late at night or after 13 hours of work. And no one sees you out on the field or what you do with your hands the finishing of that work, are you able to step back from that and say, how well I did that even puts on display the excellency of the God I claim to serve. The work you do with your hands that becomes so easy with your numbers or your computer or the reports you do or the things you do, does it put on display the exhibit of a God you claim to serve? It puts on the perfection of of his attributes. There's this big fancy word a lot of theologians like to use that Jesus displays the effulgence of God. He puts on display the manifest perfection of God's attributes. Let's keep going. The next thing. He is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when he says he is the exact imprint, if you see it on your notes, he is the exact representation and embodiment of God the Father. In the Greek, it's where we get our word character. So he displays the character of God. Jesus displays the perfection of the attributes of God and he displays the character of God. Again, it's another way of him saying he is completely putting God the Father on display. Keep your marker in Hebrews. Let's go to the book of John again and let's listen to how Jesus describes this in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Again, we're looking at this idea of Jesus being the exact imprint, representation and embodiment of God the Father In John chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse eight. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. All Jesus is saying is to see me is to see the Father. 
He is saying, I am the representation of the Father. I am the radiant expression of the Father. He puts on display God the Father. Let me read this quote to you. Uh, It was a quote that I wrote down in my, sort of my meditations and journaling. It's a pretty long quote. I'll read it kind of slow, but it's about the treasuring of Jesus. If I truly desire a source of protection and victory over sin, then my cry and my prayer should be not for a greater fear and protection over what entangles me, but for a greater clarity, love, and passion for the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus above that which would distract and deceive me. A greater awareness of that which is of greater worth and value. And you may be saying, what in the world did you just read? And I credit my brother Don Parks for something he said in our elder meeting uh, Monday night that made me go home and write this. Because we were talking about how we protect ourselves from sin. How we protect ourselves from the sin that so easily entangles us. And it dawned on me that oftentimes we focus so much on the sin that entangles us rather than on the beauty that sets us free. Because you always go after that which you treasure the most. And you always perform based upon the desires of that which you treasure. So my prayer, although my prayer should be, oh God, please help me to be wise and to see the deception of the enemy. My greater desire is to be absolutely enamored with the beauty and sufficiency of who Jesus is first. I'll give you a terrible example, although I think it's actually a pretty good example. For those of you that are married, and you remember when you first, I'll use the word fell, but it's a terrible word. When you fell in love with your bride, and you were enamored by the beauty of her, and let me use this word, you were captivated by the sufficiency of her. And as a matter of fact, when you became captivated by the sufficiency of her, it changed your entire behavior. Your buddies said, what has happened to you? You changed your habits. You changed your language. You showered. You, you lost weight. I mean, you, you, in fact, you turned your back on friends. And they could stand behind you and dance a jig and entice you. In fact, you could have been a drunken idiot. But she said, you take another drink, we're done. You became a teetotaler. She said, I'm never kissing you if you put that Copenhagen in your mouth. You quit. You may have shook for three months, but you quit. It changed because something sufficient captured you and you treasured it. I'm telling you, gentlemen, oftentimes we're fighting against sin rather than treasuring beauty. And when you treasure the sufficiency of Jesus, it changes the way you behold what you used to be attracted to. And so for the sin struggles that you're having, rather than bowing your head again tonight and saying, oh God, help me to stop doing this, turn it and say, oh God, Help me to treasure my sufficient Jesus. Help me to see him for the beauty of who he is. Because we are not told to simply, we are told to run from those things and to guard from those things. But what are you running towards? 
And you will see through the study of the book of Hebrews, he is a sufficient savior who has finished a work on the cross, who is worthy of our worship and who treasures us far more than we treasure ourselves. And he is worthy to be worshiped and to be an object of our worship because he is sufficient. I challenge you today before you step, when you get in your truck or your car or whatever it is, you just simply say, oh God, help me to treasure Jesus more than I have ever treasured him before. As far as we're gonna get today, um, let me pray with you. And then I have a little video I want you to watch. It's three and a half minutes long. Um, so let me pray. I hope you'll close everything and shut it down and watch this video. It's an old one. Some of you have seen it. If you've seen it, you know how powerful it is once you begin to hear it. If you've never seen it, I hope that it will be an encouragement to you about who Jesus is. And, um, as soon as the video is done, I'll say another quick prayer and we'll be out of here. So Father, as we're shutting everything down and closing our Bibles and getting ourselves ready to leave, begin to turn us to the sufficiency of Jesus. It's so easy to be entangled by other things rather than set free by the supremacy and the beauty of who Jesus is. I know for me, most of my Christian life has been spent trying to not do certain things. But I have never had to try to not do things that drew me away from my bride because I was captivated by her at the age of 13. And I am reminded by the reading of Hebrews that I have been treasuring a destination of heaven much more than a savior of heaven named Jesus. So help me, help us to be men who treasure Jesus the one who puts on display the glory of God, the one who shows us the character of God, the one who is the heir of all things and the sustainer of creation. May Jesus steal our affections, capture our emotions, and render us worshipers of a great king. Father, I know this is just a a little video, but I pray the truth of it would speak to us now in Jesus' name. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today.
supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. So, Amen. Lord, I pray that you would help us to treasure Jesus. I thank you for uh, someone like Pastor S.M. Lockridge who, uh, who helps us even get a greater perspective of what it is to treasure Jesus. And may we be men who treasure him today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to know where that's from, you can YouTube it. His name is S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge. He's an African-American pastor, and uh, he's a funny man. You can even listen to the sermon that came from. The word is that he did that impromptu, that he was praying, and uh, that's what he did as he was praying. So anyways, S.M. Lockridge. Have a great day.